Roger Green, host of the Surfing the Mesh Tsunami podcast. Today, we're offering five conversations from episode 49, our wrap-up of the Liver Meeting 2023, plus from the vault, Laurent Costera's contribution to our Liver Meeting 2022 wrap-up. This conversation starts with me tiptoeing into the topic of nomenclature by discussing a Saturday morning session shared by Maru Ranella and Mina Bonsal. The session took a broad, fairly detailed view of progress in knowledge and implementation of the new nomenclature since it was rolled out in June. My point about this presentation is that originally there were three obvious potential downsides to the new nomenclature. This meeting demonstrated that two are now moved. First, George McCarr of FDA stated that the agency now uses the terms MASH and NASH or MAFLD and NAVL interchangeably and will do so in drug development and diagnostic evaluation. Second, Quentin Anstey and Arun Sanyal report from the Litmus and Nimble databases that the patient overlap when mapping against the two definitions of 95 to 98%. And I note, Greg Gore's editor-in-chief of hepatology stated that the journal believes this issue is proven and over and will not accept any more publications on the subject. The third potential downside is stigma around the word fat. I quote our good friend patient advocate Tony Biliotti in noting that while we may describe a specific medical event as a myocardial infarction, the doctor still tells the patient they had a heart attack. Similarly, the concept of fat on the liver will be essential in explaining to patients what's going on, whatever we call the disease. This leads Laurent Castero to discuss the paper on stigma presented at the conference, after which Scott Friedman and I comment on vastly different moments in time and location, when obesity, far from being seen as stigmatizing, was seen as a good thing. The entire discussion shifts as Scott remembers the triple agonist agents and the remarkable impact they are likely to have on how we manage obesity, diabetes, and liver disease. Since these drugs demonstrate levels of weight loss significant to bariatric surgery, I asked Laurent and Scott whether they believe the drugs will have similar impact on the liver to surgery. They say it's too early to tell. Bruce Campbell follows this by mentioning a study showing that allied health professionals are proficient at motivating patients to lose weight to maintain that loss and to do so in healthy ways. My wrap-up question is to ask what will be different next year in San Diego. You'll have to listen to hear their answers. As I said in the introduction to this episode, one hour cannot do this conference justice. But this particular conversation hits highlights of one or two of the key issues in novelty or novelty presented today. So just sit back, listen, learn, feel, and when you're done, join the dialogue in our LinkedIn discussion group. Today's episode of Surfing the Mash Tsunami, reviewing the highlights of TLM 2023, has been sponsored by Madrigal Pharmaceuticals. Madrigal Pharmaceuticals is a clinical-stage biopharmaceutical company pursuing novel therapeutics for non-alcoholic steatohepatitis, NASH, a liver disease with high unmet medical need. Madrigal's lead candidate, Resmeterum, is a liver-directed THR-beta agonist oral therapy that is designed to target key underlying causes of NASH. For more information, visit www.madrigalpharma.com. The other interesting thing to me in that context, as I say, was not just the patients, but patients as it related to nomenclature. I thought there was a very effective session uh, co-chaired by uh, Maru Ranella and Amina Bansal on Saturday morning, where they took two hours and they basically took a status of where are we at right now in nomenclature. And if you think about it, when we headed into this transition, there were three major questions for which there were not yet answers. One was regulatory, which was if we change the names, are we changing the definition? definitions in such a way that we will slow up approvals of drugs or devices or diagnostics. The second was uh, information, educational informational, which is, okay, we're changing the name, but are we changing how an actual patient is classified? Because that makes treatment really a mess. And then the third, obviously, is how do you communicate the name change? Now, against that, there are other countervailing benefits. I think MED-ALD is a benefit, getting alcohol, non-alcoholic MED onto a continuum where you're considering them all. Steatotic liver disease is, I think, helpful. But in the 8.30 session on Saturday morning, I think 
think they pretty effectively put to bed the first two of those issues. First, you had uh, George McCarr from the FDA flat out say, we are now using the terms interchangeably. We're not going to tell anybody what terms to use. But we're going to treat them as interchangeable because we see no difference. Uh, that was one. The second was both uh, Run Sanyal working out of uh, the Nimble database and Quentin Anstey working out of Litmus database, talking about overmapping patients from one set of definitions to the other and getting 95 to 98% convergence in both cases. Uh, so that's pretty good. If you overmap anything on anything, probably even identical twins, you're only going to get 98% convergence because that's how the world works. So that was, I think, important. And then even more than that, Greg Gores then got up and said, as editor-in-chief of Hepatology, we're not accepting any more papers on this subject. We think this is done. We think overmap has been proven. I mean, there were people who, when we asked them over the summer, they would tell us on this podcast, we're going to see a lot of research over the next two years on how our mazels and not different or mash and nash. And Gore said, we're not publishing that anymore. We think it's done. So if those two issues are out of play, then scientifically we're done, right? And the statement about communication at the podcast that struck me most forcefully came from Tony Villiali, who's a patient advocate who's been on this podcast a couple of times. And it was really simple. He said, look, you have something in your chest. Uh, medically, it's called a myocardial infarction. Your doctor tells you you had a heart attack. That's what's going to happen here. He said, the doctor's still going to say you got fat on your liver, whatever you call the disease. So in terms of communicating to patients on a practical one-on-one level, that shouldn't change a lot. But I don't know how you guys feel about that. Those of you who treat patients or support the treatment of patients, but from the side of being a patient, that was pretty compelling to me. I don't know how anyone... Scott Friedman. Yeah, well, I, I think there's some truth to that. I mean, patients don't know what steatosis is. No, one way or the other, you have to use the word fat. You know, part of the effort to change the name was to avoid the notion of there. this is a fatty liver disease. But at some level, you, you do have to acknowledge it. Otherwise, you can't explain what you're talking about to the patient. I think the process was very impressive and rigorous. I give a lot of credit to ASLD and Easel, Jeff Lazarus, who spearheaded this, who's really a master at these kinds of groupthink decisions. And per- personally, I find it a little much more of a mouthful when I'm lecturing to spit it out, but I guess that'll get better over time. And there was an acknowledgement that Although the evidence for this was scant, there was an, a, a concern or an acknowledgement that using the word non-alcoholic in a patient with what is now Mazel D would make them feel like we were being pejorative in some way because the word alcoholic was in there and they don't want to hear that if they had nothing to do with alcohol. I never saw any data that really supported that, but th- yeah, there was some logic to it. And if it helps patients come to terms with their disease without feeling uh, somehow pigeonholed or accused, then that's probably a good thing. Although the representative from India at Easel last year in Washington made the point that in India, non-alcoholic is a good thing because you say cirrhosis, people immediately think you've been drinking and that's against the religion. So I thought Zobair and Jeff, you know, I see Jeff and a few other people published a paper that showed that the stigma around obesity and diabetes in the eye of the patient is far greater than the stigma around fatty liver. That where the stigma around fatty liver was greatest, in fact, is in the eye of the provider. Laurent Castera. Right. I, I can maybe add a comment because I, I was part of this study. And this is a global study. And the interesting part is stigmatization was mainly observed in the U.S., not in the rest of the world, and mostly related to obesity rather than steatosis, because steatosis does not show, whereas obesity, of course, is obvious. But that's an interesting study that will be published soon in GF. And I agree with Scott, we don't have much data. I was in Chicago at the meeting for the nomenclature meeting, and I remember some patients were claiming this, but we had no real evidence or data. So now we have. And just maybe a last comment from the French perspective, because I agree with Scott that if you tell a patient he has steatosis, he has no clue most of the time. If you say, and especially in France, if you have foie gras, of course, it rings a bell. 
and it's rather positive than negative. They don't know, <laughs> they don't feel stigmatized if you tell them they are foie gras because everyone knows foie gras in France, and this is a very positive word, especially yeah. before Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. That's good. I've heard for years people describing a fatty liver as being a bit like pate, but I've never taken it in reverse and said, in France, if you call it foie gras, that's a good thing. I like that. Well, I'm struck by Laurent's comment about the stigmatization being more an American thing. And frankly, I'm not surprised given the hostile nature of our politics and some of our leadership and the name calling that characterized uh, national politics for the last few years. I, uh, there's an article in today's Times about how our former president's uh, vitriol and uh, rudeness has become you know, much has established a very unfortunate standard in our country that people are intolerant and abusive in their language. And I'm, you know, I'm going off on a major tangent here, but I'm sad to think they're probably related. You know, Scott, I am as appalled by the coarseness as you are. And we're not going to talk about what I saw fathers of young girls wearing on their T-shirts as I was out with my granddaughter on Saturday. But it was coarse and appalling beyond belief. But that said, part of the issue is cultural, which is that you, a society needs to achieve a certain level of affluence before obesity becomes a problem. If you go back 100 years in the U.S., when people were still on the farm or just coming off the farm, obesity was shown as a sign of prosperity, that you could afford to buy enough food to get fat. Interestingly, I remember the early days of HIV and obesity, or at least lack of thinness, was uh, interpreted as a sign that you aren't HIV infected. It's ironic. It is ironic. But if you go back, we think of Theodore Roosevelt as being a remarkably fit president because he's energetic and he did things, but look at pictures of him. And in today's society, he would be deemed uh, more obese. And his successor, Taft, could just about get out of a bathtub. That was 100 year, 110 years ago. Now, we've progressed. But I was having this conversation with Zobier, actually, on one of the interviews that we did last week, and his comment was roughly the same, which is that there are parts of the world where obesity is seen as a sign of prosperity, as compared to being seen as a sign of poor health. That, that and that's me. before we get to Foie Gras. Yeah, that, that reminds me of an important theme that emerged. I hesitate to use the term the 800-pound gorilla in the context of what we're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> but the weight, loss, the weight loss drugs are game changers in terms of how we obviously how we manage obesity and their impact on, on steatotic liver disease and particularly NASH as well as NASH cirrhosis are yet to be established. My own prediction which is more educated guesswork is that some patients who lose weight on these drugs will have an important and meaningful liver improvement and some will not. We'll see. But it was all over the meeting indirectly because it's, you know, clearly influencing prescribing habits in as vigorous a way as anything I can think of. Well, and Arun's pre, Arun Sanyal's presentation on ritatritide, right, is, is what's to come. We're now looking at three triple agents in development. The altamine drug, pembitatide, the drug that Merck licensed from Hanmi in Korea, aphenopegdatide, if I remember correctly, and then the Lilly drug, ritatritide. And they're all triple agents, and they're all showing staggering reductions in liver. Yeah, they're basically medical equivalents of bariatric surgery in terms of the amount of weight loss. Yeah. So my question to the two of you is, do we believe that they will have the same impact that bariatric study surgery showed in the study that Laurent referenced at the beginning of this episode, or, you, or is there reasons that it might be different? I think we don't know, Roger, because uh, I think it would be naive to assume that weight loss by any means is the same, meaning that, you know, there's a lot of data that would suggest the beneficial impact of bariatric surgery in part is mediated by changes to the microbiome. I don't know if that happens with uh, pharmacologically induced weight loss. So we, I think we don't really know. 
I, but I would not assume that losing 30 pounds by bariatric surgery or by uh, medical therapy is going to be absolutely the same. But we don't know. We'll find out. I agree. We don't really know. And don't forget that the candidate for bariatric surgery are just a minority. They are not representative of the majority of patients we're seeing. So I think it's difficult to extrapolate. And also with these drugs, of course, we don't have mid or long term data on maintenance because if you stop the drugs, then you again wait again. So it's I think it's impossible for the moment being to extrapolate. Of course, it's tempting, but you have to be very cautious. Louise Campbell. My thoughts on what you were discussing there is actually coming back to Allied Health. There were a couple of very good presentations. One that Mazen Nuruddin mentioned in the last sum up of the session, which was the wild study by adding advanced practitioners, you got 77% better weight loss into the management. But also in the sessions on the advanced practitioners and what they bring to healthcare, they focused on a Marzal clinic that was run by Allied Health and the good outcomes and how how that's done. And and they were using semaglutide and loraglutide as examples of the amount of input they put into these patients. So if we are going to go down these routes, then we really do need to be able to facilitate the appropriate support mechanisms in for people that we put on these medications, be to give them the best support that they can get and the outcomes of those medications. So the more medications we add, the more complicated the ability to manage each of these individual patients becomes. And actually, the loss of potential revenue or health cost for each one we lose, if we don't put in the right structures, becomes bigger. Then people say, oh, the drug failed or they've lost a follow-up. Actually, we need to be looking at the structures and the pathways that we put in around there. And there's some very good evidence from this session that I'd ask people to go and look. If you're going to be implementing these, look to people who've already done it and have got some really good ideas and evidence to back that up. Agreed. And I'm going to add one thought and then we've got a final question, which is, and it has to do with both Laurent's comment and Louise's. The gastric effects, side effects with these agents are likely to be significant, appear to be pretty significant in what we're hearing so far. It may well be that the triple agent becomes a way for people to lose weight, but then over time they're maintained on a GLP-1. It's possible. You know, that, that we, we might see an induction maintenance kind of a strategy here for reasons having to do with cost and also having to do with long-term tolerability. Well, we'll have to see, but I think it's, it's one of the places where that's a possibility. Okay, so wrap-up question. One thing that will be different next year in San Diego. I mean, besides the app and the weather? I'm not sure that'll be. I'm not sure that'll be different. I like your confidence. I'm sure about the weather. I'm not sure about the weather. Yeah, the weather. Uh, well, we, we managed to avoid speaking about it, but I think it's safe to assume that there'll be an approved drug and how that changes the dynamic. I think I can't entirely predict, but it will change it. Okay, and, and that's why I mentioned at the beginning that everyone cared. Everyone was talking about March 14th. Okay, Laurent. That would be my guess as well. It's going to change the field. Well, apart from the drug, I'm hoping to be there. That'll be different. I wasn't at Arzal this year. I want to be an Arzal person only next year. That'll be different because I'm staying away from the technology. San Diego's worth it. So the other difference I think is noteworthy is Madrigal produced a lot of, a lot of papers were produced out of the Maestro's phase three trial data from the various studies. And we're starting to see data from Nail and IT and some of the law and some of the consortia that weren't litmus and nimble. I expect we'll see more of that next year and that we'll see more pooling of data from multiple drug trials, particularly around issues of safety in NITs. And I'm hoping that that can shed some light that we've been unable to shed in the smaller databases that we've seen so far. And then obviously we all agree, should um, Madrigal have successful conclusions 
conclusion was meet around with the FDA, which we're all kind of assuming at this point. That'll change everything a lot. Well, I think for sure the, there'll be a lot of questions around what you need to get a, a drug approved. Certainly the drugs in development are going to keep moving forward. And, but I think just in terms of the optimism and certainly the clinical care pathway is going to be profoundly altered if you can hand the treatment to the patient. And then I would encourage us all to ask, how do we know which 25% are responding to the drug and should stay on it and which ones need something else? That's to be continued. Today's episode of Surfing the MASH Tsunami, reviewing the highlights of TLM 2023, is sponsored by Madrigal Pharmaceuticals. Madrigal Pharmaceuticals is a clinical stage biopharmaceutical company pursuing novel therapeutics for non-alcoholic steatohepatitis, NASH, a liver disease with high unmet medical need. Madrigal's lead candidate, Resmeterum, is a liver-directed THR-beta agonist oral therapy that is designed to target key underlying causes of NASH. For more information, visit www.madrigalpharma.com. And now, back to Roger. We hope you've enjoyed this recording. If you have any questions or comments about the content of this conversation or the entire episode, please put them in the review section of the page from which you downloaded this conversation or send an email to questions at surfingnash.com. We'll be back next week with a topic still to be determined. Until then, stay safe. Surf on. We'll see you on the podcast. Bye-bye now. Bye-bye now.